Hi, I'm Rami. And I'm Shannon, and this is Workplace Hugs, where we talk about interesting things we've read or heard to help all of us expand our life toolkit with a whole bunch of empathy, but without a whole new degree. Rami, what are we talking about this week? We're talking about talking heads again. I promised or threatened, I think, (laughs) in my last book episode that we would talk about talking heads again and we're going to but uh tangentially i guess so david byrne who we talked about uh lead singer mostly writer of all talking head songs is also a huge fanatic of music in general but also how it works so the book is called how music works it's by david byrne and it it uses talking heads in his career to kind of pull the story along but it it hits music in many 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 different ways so we're going to talk about a few of them the ones we won't talk about that i find fascinating are he actually goes through an album of his and says okay this is how much they gave me as like the money ahead of it like the prepayment he's like and This is how much it cost me to produce the album, like including all the musicians I brought in. This is what it um, cost them to make the physical albums. And now looking back on it five years later, here's what I've made on that specific album. Like with all the different ways that that revenues come in for an album. Yeah. So like that, I think, as a musician is really fascinating. It's slightly out of date because... Streaming comes up just at the end of the book, where I would say streaming is like the predominant way of making music now, which is very different than it was back then. So he talks about that piece of it. There's a whole piece for him about uh, performing the music. And as we talked about in the um, Remain in Love episode, performance is like a big thing to him, right? Because Talking Head started out as a strictly playing band right like they didn't even record anything they were just a band that kept playing until they felt like they were good enough and then they recorded it and so getting into the stop making sense tour is where they really hit their peak and he goes i don't know how to top this right like this was artistry and music at its peak i can't top that so in his own career as a so that's when talking head stopped touring but in his own career as an individual he found that he could find ways to keep that going through different partners that he would get. So there was like a whole like flamenco um, tour that he did with like flamenco inspired songs. And like he had those kinds of people coming with him. He had like one that was like very African in theme. So he had like a bunch of like African drummers and dancers and like joining him to like keep pushing the style and the artistry of the concert experience and now what you can do is actually see his latest tour which was american utopia it was a tour like it did all the big concert venues like even the humongous ones like coachella it's him and i don't know 10 or 12 people and they play everything live on stage while dancing oh it's so cool it's so cool uh, so they play a bunch of Talking Head songs. They play some David Byrne songs. They cover a song by Janelle Monet. Um, oh my gosh! Which is super cool. Uh, you and I were talking about it actually before we started recording, but it's like a very BLM song in that they um, say the names of people who've been killed, mm-hmm. 
and they're like, say my name, say my name. And they like keep saying it's good. Uh, So American Utopia, you can watch it's on HBO. Um, They recorded that. So he, he did that as a tour for a few years. And then they, he was on Broadway with that show for like two years. Like you could go to Broadway and see them perform American Utopia, which is basically David Byrne's greatest hits performed in a very artistic way. Um, So that is definitely worth checking out. But all of that to say, like, he's very mindful about all aspects of music. And so the book is fascinating in that way. The two pieces I want to talk about are the history of music and the limitations that um, recording has put on music. And then I want to talk about definitive versions, which I think is really fascinating. Let's dive in. The history of music sounds like a really overwhelming topic. I'm going to make it short and brief. But only to say that, like, the limitations of recording have always strongly influenced the music that's being output with the intention being, let's think about how we've got those same limitations in our own lives and how we're either not acknowledging them, but living within them or acknowledging them and uh, thriving within them. Didn't we do a whole side hug about thriving with constraints or something? Yeah, it was from this book. Oh, okay. I'm remembering the cruise story of like not having internet on cruises. Oh no, that was a different one. We thrive a lot with restrictions Constriction. because I think it's I think it's good. Um, okay, so history of music. So the earliest iterations of music were people singing and performing, and you could only hear it live. And you could try and mimic that later, but. You didn't have any way of knowing, of having, you didn't have a recording of it. You didn't have, you didn't even have sheet music to be like, okay, let's play the music. Here's what it is. Let me play it again. Yeah. So for a lot of time, once music became a thing, once it was stopped being performed in social areas and started being performed for the public, because there's a transition of music from we're gathering around the fire and we're just making music to okay beethoven is performing some music that he's written specific you start having concert halls built for music and performers right because oh we all want to go see this concerto whatever it is this symphony so this city is big enough we're going to build a concert hall for this thing and people can come here and listen to it but at that point you still could only pay to go and listen to it in those spaces. And then after that, the first the first version of recorded music is sheet music, Shannon. Yeah. I was just picking up on that myself when you when you mentioned it earlier, like like literally you couldn't even go and copy it or imitate what you'd heard at home because or what you had heard out and about because music wasn't a thing yet. Sheet music so, wasn't a thing yet. There's a really famous story and I'm going to I'm going to massacre it, but I'm going to tell you it because I find it fascinating. So like one of these guys, Mozart, Beethoven, one of those guys um, went to the Vatican because the Vatican had a piece of music that was only allowed to be played there. It was like Mm. some piece that was specifically written for it. He went and listened to it twice and then wrote it all out like because he had such good music memory that he could just Mm -hmm. hear it and then so i'm sure some people could go and listen to it and be like all right family we just heard the latest beethoven let me bang it out for you guys i'm a piano that's my sister my sister has that ability 
Yeah. So I think there's that amount. But for the majority of people, it wasn't until sheet music existed that like, okay, family, let's gather around the piano and let's play these songs. So then that's the only way that music really exists in a portable fashion. Yep. Uh, until you can record music. And that was on, that was usually only played through like the radio. Right. So you couldn't even pick what you wanted because there's no way to buy music still. Yes. Unless you're buying sheet music. So Sidebar, f- when did the radio come out? I have no uh, context on that. He said, but I wasn't paying attention. Okay. Anyways, keep going. So then the first piece of purchasable at home music is a vinyl recording. Okay. So the first vinyl records, Shannon, were the little guys. They call them 45s now, yes. but they're 78s. I can they hold my mom had some. Uh, five minutes of music. So, oh. So, for the longest time, any song that you heard on the radio was going to be less than five minutes, Shannon. It makes me wonder how much that has influenced why songs are absolutely only absolutely. under that amount today. Absolutely. The radio was invented in 1895. 1897 sure. by the way 1897 okay so like right before 1900 can you think of any hit radio songs that are over five minutes no the only one that like is i don't even know if it was a hit technically but when taylor swift re-recorded the Shannon, red album are you looking at my notes because no, i have right here <laughs> looking at you taylor swift with your 10 minute long version of all too well oh taylor's version no i was not looking at your notes that was the only thing that came to mind as a possibility and i remember that it was very controversial that she allowed herself to have like take up that much space in this song i've heard it in a couple of peloton workouts i really don't listen to the radio anymore but i've heard the 10 minute version in a couple of peloton workouts and i couldn't tell you if it that's where i was like i don't know if it was popular or not but i know that she did it and she's pretty popular so <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, there's very few songs that are that famous. Uh, I'm trying to think of how long Bohemian Rhapsody is. Oh. American Pie is another long one. Um, there's a few, but for the most part, most songs that are pop hits are sub five minutes because of that. Because that's what we are used to a song length being. And that's what uh, that's what we've been trained for for years shannon well and i remember that being talked about in the queen movie which i think is called bohemian rhapsody that that was very controversial that they had allowed themselves i just googled it it's a six minute song and that was like a big deal then like they didn't know if people were going to play it on the radio because it was so freaking long Mm mm-hmm we're talking six minutes taylor swift's song is almost twice as long as that yeah i could nerd on this stuff forever Okay, so that's really what sets up the majority of the length of pop music for for the rest of time, right? Yeah. Like, we still have sub-five-minute songs, yes. right? And that was a recording limitation at that moment, and maybe not that long, right? So those are the 45, 78s. Uh, so the next jump that you have is the full-size vinyl, the 33s. Those hold 20 minutes. So at that point, you could record a 20-minute song that would take up a whole side. You could record a 40 minute song that was both sides, but there's going to be a break in it. Yep. And then you could 
extend that. But really, intrinsically talking about it, 20 minutes was your new cap of this is the most length that you could put on something that someone is going to listen to. Yep. Uninterrupted. Um, And I've got a few records of Miles Davis where it's one track on the side. Right. And they probably stopped once they got close to the limit and we're like, okay, cool. Like that's got to cut it here. (laughs) Let's cut it here because we don't want to have to get over to the other side. Um, Or digitally after or analogly after they like chopped it down so that it would fit on one side. So then you're stuck at 20 minutes being like the new max, the new max, the really big next jump is CDs. So do you know how long a CD is, Shannon? Like how much? Music no, I was just curious about that. I was like, I don't know. What's the time limit on CDs then? So it's about 80 minutes. But initially it was going to be 60 minutes. It was going to be a smaller CD. Um, and the companies coming up with it were Philips and Sony. Like they were working together on it. Because Philips was going to make the media and Sony was going to make the players. And so they were like, let's work together. And we'll like push this much faster and further. So the CEO of Sony was like, 60 minutes is not cutting it. My favorite piece of music is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And the longest version of that is 74 minutes. So the CD has to be able to fit that on it. Wow. So that's what dictated how long CDs were. We're fitting Beethoven's Ninth Symphony for the CEO of Sony because he wanted to be able to listen to it uninterrupted. So that becomes the next piece. And then finally, when you jump to digital, you have endless possibilities, right? Like Mm -hmm. five minutes, 20 minutes, 100 minutes. And and in the book, he talks about it. There's like pieces of music that are digitally rendered that are like almost infinite because you can run the program and just say, okay, do this and then whatever. And then and so the possibilities now are endless in terms of what music can be but so much of what we expect of music is based off of the history of the recording limitations right like someone could come out with taylor swift could release an album that's 10 cds long right yes but she doesn't right like i think her latest album midnights is one it's one cd it's one vinyl that flips and that's it with each song being i have to imagine under five minutes or around that range. Yep. And we're talking about, this is 80, 70, 80 years, a hundred years probably after that limitation was put in place. And we're still living within those limitations. Wow. When we first went into this topic, I thought you were going to talk about the limitations of like, there's only so many keys on a piano, you know, or something like that. Cause that's something I've heard people be in awe of before too. Of like, it's amazing how many different things we can come up with. With these same 80-some keys. Mm-hmm. But this is fascinating to think about the limitations in length. And how many variations can we come up with in the same five minutes in 80-some keys on a keyboard? <coughs> so, Shannon, my question for you is, have you... We all live within limitations like this that are either previously imposed or currently imposed. Mm-hmm. But are there any that you see in your own life that you've acknowledged and have helped you be better in that space? The one that comes to mind to me because it's a similar topic is uh, I 
have a new the the new podcast series, the Messy Monkey Middle, and I've limited myself to an hour time span for the interviews, right? Like we're not going longer than that, you know? So it's like I gotta be really on point with the questions that I'm asking, constrain in that sense to make sure that only the the best questions are getting asked. Because I could talk about transitions for three hours with somebody, but that constraint was very deliberate. Or I think about the constraints put on, this is a cheesy one, but like on an Instagram bio. Your Instagram bio mm-hmm. can only be so long. Yes. So like find a way to say it in less words, <laughs> you know? There's something liberating and also... Uh, horrifying about those restrictions, mm-hmm. especially like that one. I'm, I have tweets on here whenever it was like a much shorter character length. I remember has it changed a long time ago. I think it's longer now. Okay, but I remember a long time ago it was like you write out the tweet and you're like, nope, I hit the end and I didn't get my thought in there, so I need to like edit it down Cut. and then rewrite it until you got it within those limitations, which always I felt like forced you to be better. Yes, um, and so. That's where I say, like, limitations are nice, especially when you can acknowledge them. I think my whole goal in talking through all this is, like, where are those limitations that we're not acknowledging and how do we acknowledge them, right? Because I think if... What what comes to mind there? Well, I think about songs, right? Like, the fact that... or So, for me, specifically, when I... My printer, my 3D printer that we know that I'm obsessed with, it only prints one color at a time. So, if I want to print... A pumpkin that's not just an orange pumpkin because the stem shouldn't also be orange. I have to go into the model and cut out the stem, remove that, and then when I go to print it, I print the pumpkin in in orange, and then separately, I'll put in my green filament, and then I'll print the stem in green. But it forces me to, like, work within the limitations because of the way that it's set up. And so well, you can either have like an all orange thing or you can like take that extra step and work time. within those. Yeah. 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 I like this. This is getting me thinking. I I mean, time itself. I like to put time constraints on myself because otherwise I could. Well, I guess like what I said with the podcast recording. But even Rami's been pushing me to do a side hug on the Pomodoro method and I have still refused it. You like to bring it up, but you refuse to do an episode about it. Yeah, well, and it did come up with a client recently who's kind of been struggling to just like do the damn thing, you know? And so it was like, well, like, how long would it take you? Eh, probably two and a half hours total for this like list of five tasks. Okay, well, then let's put a freaking time constraint on it. <laughs> Set a timer for two and a half hours and get it done. You know, like I had to do that with myself on some things because I could like hem and haw over a word or in music over a note or a line or a phrase Mm -hmm. again and again and again. But sometimes you just need to call it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I like that. Okay. Let's talk about the second thing, um, which is a definitive version of music, which I never would have thought about until I read this book. Have you ever heard of this idea? The no. definitive version? No. Okay. So back in the day, you would hear a piece of music for the first time when Beethoven performed it or whoever was performing it. Like that was the first time you heard it or you heard it like around the campfire. Those were the definitive versions of the songs, right? Because that was your first time hearing it. And that was like the, in, in most instances, that was the only way to hear that song. Right. Like unless you could 
replicate that at home with sheet music or by memory. Like that was the definitive version because that was the only version and there was no recording of that version. Over time, the recorded version has started to become the definitive version. Yeah. (laughs) So what becomes very interesting is when you see a musician performing a song and it doesn't sound like the album that you've listened to a hundred times, which version is the definitive version? Like you have the person in front of you performing the song live. It's their song. But we will still think of, yeah, the recorded version is the definitive version. How strange is that? Yeah. And so musicians have had to adjust their performance style to to match match the recording, which means that they have to record in a certain way that they can match it live. That kind of makes me sad in a sense of like the derivative versions that we might be missing out on. But that doesn't mean that musicians are performing the songs to match the recording. Even if people think of that as a definitive version, because they probably are like, that doesn't make sense for how I perform. I'm going to perform it this way. I get to do it my way. Whatever it is. Um, But it certainly has an impact on how people record because that might be the only time anyone ever hears that song. And so they want to put a different version of it for them versus what they would play live, right? Like some artists will play crazy guitar solos live that they wouldn't put on an album, right? Like we, I've seen Prince a few times. I'm obsessed with Prince. My son's name is Prince. Um, (laughs) But like when he would play a lot of his songs, he would play crazy guitar solos on top of the ones that were already in the recorded versions. But you ask anybody who loves Prince and it's like, oh no, seeing him live, that's the definitive version of that song, right? Like it's not the recorded version. Like seeing him play it was hearing him play what he wanted to play, right? And so like, that's what I think is so interesting because he still puts his guitar solo in most of the songs, but when yeah. he's going to play it, he's going to play a four minute guitar solo, not like a 30 second guitar solo that would have made it a pop hit because he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. I find that so fascinating. Yeah, I do too. It makes me curious. My husband is obsessed with Dave Matthews band. For me, there's not like one artist that I'm really obsessed with. He's obsessed with Dave Matthews band, you know, and I'm, I'm curious to ask him about this because I'm guessing that he may say, no, he will, the recorded version isn't it. It was when they recorded Red Rocks at and, the, and yeah, this at one. the gorge. Yeah, yeah. They played fucking ants marching. Yes. And that's the one. 1998. They had the right band. And yes. Sunset behind them. And this is the version. Yes. That is the version of the only song I know by Dave Matthews, which is ants marching. There might be other Dave Matthews songs. There's many. Um, He's gotten me hooked on them a little bit, but I'm not a devotee like he is. I had a friend in high school and college who had a radio station, uh, like not a station, like a show. It was like in the middle of the night and it was called Anything But Dave. (laughs) And you'd play anything anyone wanted but Dave Matthews Band. That's like I would play anything but Dave Matthews Band. But to the people like your husband who likes Dave Matthews Band or the people who like the Grateful Dead or the people who like um, what's that other band that everybody likes? Uh, I can't remember what their name is. Whatever. Any of those like jam bands, they have definitive versions of their songs. Yes. Uh, I will 
I will be bold here and say that one of the definitive versions, if not the definitive version of the Star Spangled Banner is by Whitney Houston at the Super Bowl, which everybody Mm. will remember was a very unique and memorable performance. And so it's interesting to think about people can take a song that's not theirs and by performing it in such a large space in such a memorable way can become the definitive version of a song. Well, and honestly, that's what I was thinking of for myself personally, because there isn't like a one artist, you know, that I'm really obsessed with. But for me, I think about it more as like a song. And I love this example of the Star Spangled Banner. For me, what comes to mind is probably because just the middle is on my mind a lot lately. Jimmy World recorded the middle, you know, just take some time, little girl in the middle. And I don't know when she came out with it, but I think her name's Audrey Assad. She recorded a version of that song that I'm like, fudge, that is the definitive version of that song. Like it is not poppy. It is, it is the freaking middle. It is a, is she turned into a ballad? She turned into like this slow feeling song. So I'm more interested in this of like same song, different artist than same artist playing the song a billion different ways. Because you feel something different when somebody re-records it. Sure, but I think to 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 the artist's credit, I think there is still a definitive version of that song within them. Sure, yeah, within them. So, like, I think of I really like Switchfoot, um, and I've seen them over thirty times. Holy smokes, that's like your Dave Matthews band. Well, is it? Yeah, except they don't suck. um but they have a song called stars and now when i hear a the the album version of it it's not my definitive version because i've heard them play it live so many times that Mm. that is my that is my definitive version they play it the same way every freaking time live and it's very different than the recorded version that's my definitive version of that song and so i even like hear him doing what he does like the vocalizing that he does which is my definitive version because i've heard it so many times like it now has become what i expect to hear when i hear the recording okay remind me switchfoot was that like a popular aren't they like i'm I'm probably mixing this up aren't they like a popular christian band too or do they have like christian roots like they're like undercover Okay, okay. Semi. Because I remember Semi. seeing them live when I was in college, I think. See, Shannon, look how cool you are. You saw Switchfoot? See, look, I do know a thing or two. <laughs> See how cool you are? Maybe we were at the same concert. Was it in Minnesota? Yes, it was in Minnesota. Because after they sing the song, whatever. I'm back you You're going to say Dave. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's I know exactly what, what I was going to say. How did you know? Is that their most popular song ever? It's one of them, yeah. Okay. It's from a walk to remember. I got their I got their album. I had their CD. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I'm I'm hip Why and happening slash okay. not at all. Next week. Next week, come back and we're only <laughs> gonna be talking about Switchfoot indefinitely. Now that we found <laughs> one piece of pop culture that's not Ted Lasso that Shannon and I both This is no like. longer a podcast about workplace hugs. This <laughs> is a podcast about Switchfoot. <laughs> uh we need to figure out what concert that was, because I'm pretty sure I was there, which is gonna be a fun I feel like it was at the Memory. River Center. The River Center? It's at, River Center is attached to the Excel Energy Center. Excel Energy Center. Yeah, it's a smaller one. But it's one. not. Mm-hmm. Or some yep. venue within there. 
It was in St. Yeah. Paul. I saw them play multiple times in St. Paul. Could have been at Concordia. <laughs> I saw them play Concordia. No, was it? It was. I saw them play the River Center once. Who Could've knows? Maybe we knew each other before we knew each other. Now we got to look at our pictures that were printed out back then and see if we're in each other's backgrounds. You guys, it's a whole new show now. I'm going to have like <laughs> those like sweaty wristbands that I used to wear back then because I was like a little punk. Oh my gosh. Um, short build hat. It's going to be embarrassing. But it's gonna be I fun. would like okay. to see pictures of Rami the punk. <laughs> so definitive version of music. Uh, what that makes me think of, and we can shift into tactical here, is like thinking about your definitive version, right? Like there's a lot of things Ooh. that like you do a lot, right? How you introduce yourself, how you talk to people, all those things. Like what's the definitive version of Shannon? What's the definitive version of Rami, right? Like if you meet Rami and you can't pronounce my name, I'm going to tell you it's like raw meat without the T. Yeah. Um, but think about like, what is your definitive version, right? Like there's a version that you put out there. That's your recorded version. But what's the live version? And is the live version different than the recorded version? Do you adjust the live version to be more like the recorded version? Mm-hmm. Unpack that for yourself. I think it's fascinating. That is really blowing my mind right now. I need to spend some time thinking about that. Well, sorry. I know we're already like 30 minutes, but I was thinking about this just the other day yesterday about I do day in the lives on Instagram and how different my day in the lives are now like than they used to be. Because right now I'm like, I don't, fucking, I don't fucking care. Like, this is who I am. If you don't want to watch this shit, go See? find another channel. Shannon's <laughs> live version is overtaking her recorded version. Yes, whereas before I would feel the pressure. I would feel the pressure to make my recorded version look better than the actual live version. And now I'm like, no, this is the definitive version. And you just get to see this. (laughs) So think about that. I think there's places for all of us where we can think about like the recorded version and the live version. And if those are out of sync, like which one's definitive? Yeah. Um. And then the other piece I would say is like, as we do things, think about where those boundaries exist in our lives. And two things. One, how do we acknowledge that? And two, how do we maximize our abilities within those? Um, I don't know that we thought we would get here, but we got here, Shannon. We (laughs) talked about the history of music, got to talk about talking heads, got to talk about Switchfoot. We're going to do, we'll have already done We've done, we did an episode on Switchfoot. So this is good. You guys heard more about Switchfoot. I like Switchfoot. Um, but yeah, I'm going to read a quote and then let's be done. And we'll, we'll ask you for a takeaway here in a second. But technology has altered the way music sounds, how it's composed and how we experience it. It has also flooded the world of music. The world is awash with mostly recorded sounds. We used to have to pay for music or make it ourselves. Playing, hearing, and experiencing it was exceptional. A rare and special experience. Now, hearing it is ubiquitous. And silence is the rarity that we pay for and savor. Freaking love that. I think you could sub in the way, sub in the word we for music too. (laughs) Technology is also the way we sound, how we're composed, and how we experience life. Yep. I love it. Okay, so uh, my question for you guys is, is there, is there, oh, there's two ways to go with this. Um, okay. Give my us both. Way, okay. Uh, I want to know if you guys hate Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> Come on. 
on. Because I think that there's a lot of people who have strong feelings about Dave Matthews Band. Probably. Either they love Dave Matthews Band or, like me, may not like Dave Matthews Band because okay. they like music. Um, the other side of that is I want to know about where you found boundaries in your life and um, that you didn't realize were there initially. Yeah. And how you lived within them or how you embraced them? Yes. Okay. Good stuff. With that, we'd love for you to connect with us on Instagram or LinkedIn and share those things with us. I've been Shannon. And I've been Rami. And this has been Workplace Office.